And we go to the Dunedin Consort for a piece from Handel's Messiah, to start the music, that is, and it is, O Thou That Tellest Good Tidings to Zion.
consort there and O Thou Who Tellest Good Tidings to Zion from Handel's Messiah. Here's David to tell us about our next piece. Malcolm Geit is chaplain of Girton College in Cambridge. Malcolm has produced an anthology of poems for Advent and he reads one of them for us now. The poem I have set for the 10th of December in Waiting on the Word, my anthology of poems for Advent, Christmas and Epiphany with Canterbury Press, is John Keats's beautiful little lyric, In Drear Nighted December. In drear nighted December, too happy, happy tree, thy branches ne'er remember their green felicity. The north cannot undo them with a sleety whistle through them, nor frozen thawings glue them from budding at the prime. In drear nighted December, too happy, happy brook, thy bubblings ne'er remember Apollo's summer look. But with a sweet forgetting, they stay their crystal fretting, never, never petting about the frozen time. Ah, would twere so with many a gentle girl and boy, but were there ever any writhed not at passing joy? The feel of not to feel it, when there is none to heal it, nor numbered sense to steal it, was never said in rhyme. That was Malcolm Guite. And after that wintry piece, our next song more or less chose itself. It's Alexander Armstrong with In the Bleak Midwinter. In the bleak midwinter 
composed by Gustav Holtz and Alexander Armstrong was singing Christine Rossetti's In the Bleak Midwinter. But let's get back to David. Brian Greene is a physicist who is amazed by the wonders of creation. Michael Barclay asks him about science and religion and also his favourite music which includes Bach. 
After the interview, we hear John Elliott Gardner conducting the Monteverdi Choir and the English Baroque Solos, playing the end of Part 3 of the Christmas Oratorio by J.S. Bach. One of the things that struck me, Brian Green, reading your new book, Until the End of Time, is how much you want your readers to feel a real sense of wonder about the world. At one point, I think you're talking about energy, you say, take a break and allow that wondrous realisation of the deep inner workings of life to sink in fully. Yeah, and, you know, when you think about the universe, you can think about it in a purely, you know, cognitive way, or you can feel it. And I, strangely, once had a curious experience in a coffee shop, of all places, when I was thinking about the far future of the universe, and it kind of gave me this hollow sense when I was thinking about it. But then I had a kind of transformation where I began to just feel part of the cosmological unfolding without the need to have any legacy, without the need to leave something permanent. And it kind of felt like one of those transcendent moments. I just sort of felt a connection to things in a very deep way. So this is the mystic in you? In a sense, it is. A lot of people I know have asked if you believe in God. It depends on what one means by God. If you mean the traditional notion of a God that we hear and we think about in the common world religions, then no. But if God is the representation of the harmony... In the universe, the beauty in the universe, the coherence and how it all fits together into this wonderful structure that we inhabit and we can observe and we can measure, then, yeah. Actually, one of the sessions uh, that you run at the Science Festival is called Science and Faith, isn't yes. it? And, uh some scientists probably think you shouldn't include Oh, you're telling me? <laughs> they've called me up and they've been quite angry, yeah. many of them, and said... What is faith doing in anything that is meant to celebrate science? And my answer to that is science is meant to be a quality that reaches out to the world in many different ways. And people, at least some people, do have a religious orientation. If, if we can have a conversation in which that faith is brought into a discussion with science, that can be a rich point of contact. And that's what science should be doing, reaching out to the world so that it is embedded in the way we go about our lives. Bach again now, and for many of us, Bach is God. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the Goldberg variations, which you discovered when you saw a film about Glenn Gould? Yeah, actually, the order was a little bit different. So a friend of mine in college had introduced me to the Goldberg variations, so I was somewhat familiar with the music. And then one day he said to me, there's a film about Glenn Gould, you know, who, whose music you had been listening to it, he introduced me to, that's playing in New York. We were up in Cambridge at Harvard. And this was an era when you couldn't just go online and see any film, you know, from your computer. There weren't any computers. So the only way to see it was to drive down. And we did. We drove a few hundred miles from Cambridge to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in Manhattan. And we saw this film. And that's where I really first encountered Glenn Gould, the person. And to see him at the piano you know, with his with his face right down at the keys, basically kissing the keys and and to hear him humming and to see him humming the music. There was this union between this individual and the piano and Bach and the music that was so thrilling. It was really quite an experience. <laughs> Thank you. 
a wee bit of Bach's Christmas Oratorio, uh, the Monteverdi Choir and English Baroque Singers. It's uh, David Essex and A Winter's Tale.
Musicianship there, that was David Essex and A Winter's Tale. The world may not take notice, but God does, that is, if we'll let him. But now let's get back to David again. Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. Today he talks about healing and compassion. Conjuring or Compassion When they came to the crowd, a man came to him, knelt before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire, and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't cure him. Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was cured instantly. I wonder if it was the passion in this heartbroken father that had taken the wind out of the disciples' sails. I bet they'd been swanning around like blow-wave evangelists, don't you? Can you picture them casting out a devil here, healing a chronic sickness there, distributing miraculous largesse like divine lords of the manor? What an experience! to have the power and authority to change lives so suddenly and so effectively. For a while it must have been so easy, everyone a winner. Perhaps they got a bit carried away with the Paul Daniels aspect of ministry. Then along comes this desperate parent, full of urgent suffering and unimpressed by anyone's power, except insofar as it might be helpful to his beloved son. Did the raw need of this particular supplicant, knock away the foundations of faith that had been laid in the disciples as they walked and talked with their master. Supposing it didn't work this time. What if the boy got worse instead of better? How would this man cope if his final hopes were dashed? What would the audience say if the great healers failed? Conjectural, perhaps. But this particular scenario has been repeated with cultural variations throughout the 2,000 years since Jesus' disciples first blew it. Ministry without compassion is still very much with us today, and it's no less likely to fail when confronted by stark, uncompromising need. A lot of people who speak with total assurance from the safety of platforms are quite lost when confronted by those annoying individuals who have believed what they were told and are now asking very simply for some of the practical assistance that was preached so boldly and theoretically. I'm quite sure that some of the work I've done has been diluted in effectiveness by my cowardice when it comes to offering direct prayer or ministry to those who've taken seriously something I've said. I blush, even as I speak. Pray with me. Father, I see so much failure in Christian ministry and we hardly ever talk about it. Does it make you very sad or very angry or both when people lose their courage like me or try to counterfeit the power of the Holy Spirit to do religious conjuring tricks, all the funny voices and the strange gestures and expressions and the excuses when it doesn't work? 
What are we to make of all that, Lord? Inhabit us with your true care, Jesus. Live your compassion through our hands and our lives. No more games. No more games that fail suffering people. We step aside, Lord. Amen. And that was Adrian Plass. His book is The Unlocking, and it's published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. Last week we heard the story of the prodigal son from the point of view of the two sons, and coming up will be Larry Gentis with the father's point of view. Also last week we heard Daniel O'Donnell singing softly and tenderly. Well, here's the same song again, completely different arrangement, the altar of praise choir this time with softly and tenderly.
softly and tenderly, as sung by the Altar of Praise Choir. The song takes its inspiration from the story of the prodigal son. Let's get back to David. Larry Gentis has produced a series of talks where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today, he tells the story of the prodigal son from the point of view of the father. I'm the father of the prodigal son in the Bible from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. I'm a family man, and I take my responsibilities very, very seriously. But the fact is, I don't understand how my two sons could be so, so different. My older boy is as steady as it goes, always dependable. When he says he'll do something, eh, you can count on it. He works hard on the farm and is really what I'd call a team player. I don't know what I'd do without him. My younger son, though, he's like the wind. You never know what you're going to get from him until the time. He doesn't value the things we do, and he, he hates farm life. Oh, he's not a bad boy. He's lots of fun, really, but kind of a life-of-the-party person. The problem is the only thing that seems to interest him is the life of a party. I don't love him any less than my older son, though I love them both just as much. One fine day, as I was on my way to the wheat fields, my younger son stopped me on the way. What he asked me was, oh, really hurtful. He said he wanted his share of the family inheritance, and could I please give it to him now? I couldn't believe it because I'm still very much alive. He said he wanted to make his own way in the world, and this money would help him get a start. I think he just wanted money to party with. Well, I gave it to him. You may ask, why? Well, if I tried to keep him on the farm, there'd be no chance he would ever face the consequences of his attitude. Sometimes the harder you try to hold on to something or someone, the more they pull the other way. I knew he wasn't going to plan anything. He was just going to have one big continual party with drinks, women, and gambling, and he was going to use the inheritance money to fund it. I wasn't sure I'd ever see him again, but I hoped and prayed. Oh, yes, there were the random travelers passing by the farm telling us stories of life in the big city outside the farm. Sometimes they'd talk about old party boy who bought round after round of drinks for everyone, Good time, Charlie, frequenting easy, easy women, playing cards until all hours. I knew they spoke of my son, but we never talked about it. Then there was a drought. No rain for the crops, not a drop. As a farmer, I've always prepared for droughts, and our family and workers are surviving. But I've heard it's not only here. We've heard that in the city where my son lives, it's been really hard hit. I hoped he was all right. Me? The only thing I could do was just keep praying for him. Well, I was on my way to the fields one day when I saw a sight I thought I'd never see again. It was him. Him. My youngest son, who I never thought I'd see again, on his way down the hill, and he was walking towards me. He was alive. I can't begin to describe the joy in my heart as I saw him coming back to me, back to us. You know, I'm no great athlete, but I ran as fast as I could to reach him. I was afraid it was an illusion, and I had to grab him before he slipped away. When I reached him, he mumbled something about not deserving to be called his son, and he'd take his place among the servants or the hired hands. I didn't much listen to that. I was just so full of joy that he really was home. He was really safe, and he seemed, well, different. The arrogant look in his eyes was gone, and he had a pleading look, hoping that I'd take him back. Take him back? 
Well, I ordered the servants to prepare a huge feast, get a new robe on his back, and give him one of the family rings with our seal. I could see that he was a changed man. I was wondering where my oldest son was. He didn't come inside the house and rejoice with us. He was, oh, really angry, and he wouldn't come in. He said that he'd worked hard all his life and the farm, on the farm, and he, he, I, I never even gave him a feast like this. But when his younger brother came home after wasting half the family fortune on drinking and gambling and loose women, he'd make like that was all right. Hmm, I can understand how he felt. But I tried to make him understand that all the money in the world wasn't worth as much as a father's love for his son. I told him I'd do the same for him if he'd asked. Why Why should we rejoice? Well, he finally realized how hurtful he'd been to all of us, and he was willing to change his ways. My son was dead in every way, but now was brought back to life in every way. And... I would do anything if it brought one of my sons to life. And that goes for you as well, my older son. Wouldn't you do the same for your children? Now it's Maddie Pryor with the Carnival Band and Angels from the Realms of Glory.
was Mary Pryor with the Carnival Band and Angels from the Realms of Glory. But let's go over to David one more time. The three vicars, Reverends Richard Coles, Kate Botley and Giles Fraser, talk about Christmas. This is part of a series where we shall hear one episode for each Sunday in Advent. My first parish, lovely vicar there, my training in Cumberland, we used to do lots of carol services there, but had beautiful medieval choir stalls. So we'd come in at the beginning together, robed, coped, blah, 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 hello everybody. And then you could lean back in the stall, but what they didn't know, there was a little gate at the back of the stall, you could go out, we could go to the vicarage, and so we'd have a whiskey, and then the verger could ring a bell, but it was Heart the Herald. <laughs> and we'd you just could like, just no. yeah, just I love that. for Heart the Herald Angels Sing. And that was a lifesaver, actually. I love Christmas, and I love Christmas because I think it's the thing that most securely and powerfully and poignantly connects me to childhood and the expectations okay, of childhood. Who were you in the nativity play? You touch on an awkward and difficult oh, point, Kate, because thanks. I really, really wanted to be a king, but I was a shepherd. Would you like me to do the pastoral head tilt at you? Because you're t- touching into deep childhood trauma here. Do you have people turning are. up for your nativity? Like, I had one year where the little boy turns up as Batman, yeah. OK, for the nativity play, and you think, oh, we'll find a way of getting you no, My, my favourite thing to do with a nativity play in church is to do the scratch nativity, so to stop any arguments about who's going to be Mary and who's going to be the angel Gabriel and all that sort of stuff. Narrator one, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, what we do is just have a big box of dressing-up clothes you just go, go at the beginning of the service and the kids and grown-ups would just leg it to the dressing-up box and whoever got the costume first, Is that, that was doing? what part they played, yeah. Mm, it makes me think of the, the man at the pool of Bethesda. <laughs> Never mind. The problem with Christmas is this, and this is my theological sort of two pennyworth, worth, is that we have this sort of sentimental view of it, but it's actually the most radical yeah. festival, the most radical festival sort of theologically ever invented. The idea that God, the thing that almost all cultures imagined to be power and transcendence uh, becomes powerless and imminent and I think we've sort of lost how shocking Christmas is amongst all the tinsel that's the bit that gets me it is nonetheless durable I mean I I I was a chorister when I was a kid so I grew up with it all but as soon as I could get out of it I did with a kind of full-blooded atheism and a commitment to a material world but the thing that endured through all that was Christmas, actually, and I would creep back to Midnight Mass just to kind of touch base with it again because it was important to me and because I kind of sensed in it something that was enduring and powerful and radical and spoke to that radical. I grew up with none of that. I went to church in my own volition when I was 14, so we had nothing. I fancied the vicar's son. You know that. You You know that story. Reader, I married him. Anyway, um... I was, we were never taken to church, so that we never had any of that. It was all Father Christmas, it was all Coca-Cola trucks. It, it had nothing to do with Jesus Christmas, really. I mean, we said grace occasionally around the table on Christmas Day. That was only once I got religion, though. Did you have religious advent calendar or did you have chocolate advent? Chocolate advent calendar. There's no other sort, I still do. You know, I've just been into the gift shop here at St Martin's to see if they've got any advent calendars. They've only got the rubbish religious ones with Jesus. <laughs> <That's> on. <very laughs> you know, chocolate. We'll raise What's it. that? We'll raise it with the rector. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> I think one of the things that's sometimes difficult for clergy is that our churches are often full, fuller than they are any other time of year, but 
we don't always connect in the way we think we connect with the people who are there, do we? Do you, does it bother you that you kind of find a Christmas stamp and there's nothing Christian on it? Does it bother you that there are Christmas cards for sale and it's all Santas and I, reindeer? I, I sort of love both, actually. I, I love the sort of culture of schmaltzy, sentimental Christmas because I'm schmaltzy and sentimental myself. The only thing I don't like about it is the way it obscures something of the, of the clarity of what's going on theologically with Christmas, which is much more radical, much more shocking than people think. Have you ever done the... I've got a sermon for you then. Have you ever done the manger-covered in tinsel sermon where you hide the manger under a pile of baubles and tinsel and then you get the kids to try and find the baby Jesus underneath all the tinsel? Oh, very nice. There you go, you very see? Nice. You can have that one. <laughs> I want it charge you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the myths and the legends around it. I mean, because that's what happens is you get a church full of people who think they know what Christmas is, right? Yeah. So I wrote an article for Saga magazine, which no doubt you read, Richard. Um, I wrote... <laughs> I wrote an article for Saga magazine last year about Christmas and wrote about how there is no mention of the donkey. There is no mention of three kings. Certainly the shepherd and the, and the magi weren't at the same place at the same time well the letters i got you would not believe how angry people were mm. there was one woman who went of course there was a donkey what about the carol little donkey yeah <laughs> i don't think that was written in <laughs> the first sermon the first sermon i ever preached was a christmas sermon and i preached to say that the reason christ was born at bethlehem was to do with prophecy in the old testament and a voice rose from the wife of a retired canon at the back and she went rubbish really? <laughs> that was my first ever sermon feedback <laughs> i just come back from Israel for three months and I went to Bethlehem I was in Bethlehem a few weeks ago and I, I always have the same problem when I go there and it's sort of part of the problem I have with Christmas which is that people get on the bus from Jerusalem and they come in really really quickly and they get out of the bus air-conditioned buses and they go straight into the fancy church and it's sort of like you know this is where Jesus was born and then they get back onto the bus and they leg it and they don't really see the wider like in Bethlehem there's lots of Christians and it's quite difficult in Manger and, Square of course there were tanks not that long ago exactly right and the whole idea of the sort of living stones of the people of the church rather than the, the these sort of fancy stones and it's the sort of tinsel churchiness that can sometimes obscure it all and that connects to what you were saying is that there's I think the reason why Christmas even if it does seem to be completely lost behind the kind of gloss of tinsel or the kind of sentimentality of adverts with fire-breathing dragons in, is that it does connect you to that that really powerful idea. And I still think it's the reason why people still connect to that is because it is ineradicably powerful, this sense that God has become flesh. Yes. And it's one of us. The image of, of Mary in that, a woman with low status becomes the person who carries the Christ child. That was always a really powerful image for me. You know, even as a evangelical heritage girl, there was always a really powerful metaphor in that image of Mary holding that baby. But we're all high church at Christmas, aren't Yeah, we? of course we are. There's something about <laughs> Christmas that is just high church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course. Yeah. Of course, you want candles, you want handbags on fire, you want all that. And that's us once again. Thank you for listening. And our thanks, too, to Richard Coles, to Kate Botley, Giles Fraser, Larry Gentis, Adrian Plass, Michael Barclay, Brian Green and Malcolm Guite, and Sam Ross for pulling it all together. We leave you with Boney M and Mary's Boy Child. Mary's Boy Child, Jesus Christ, was born on Christmas Day. And man will live forevermore because of Christmas Day. Some time ago in Bethlehem, 
Jesus Christ was born on Christmas Day. 